this is somewhat of a, a throwback uh, to a couple of years ago. Um, this was a passage in a, in a message that I've preached before, and I was um, listening and watching to the, uh, the sermon a couple, uh, from a couple of weeks ago uh, titled, Get the Hell Out, and again, every time I say that title, it makes me smile. Um, I was listening to that, and then you know how YouTube gives you suggestions of the next one you should watch? And this sermon was this next suggestion. I guess the keywords were similar or whatever it was. And so I ended up watching it, and um, it, it was just something that I felt that I wanted to preach again. I was actually tempted to show you just a video <laughs> and to give myself a week off, but um, I, I didn't want to just do that. I thought it would be awkward to show a video of myself while I'm sitting right there. Um, and so... I will be um, preaching the message, but a, a lot of uh, the content and, you know, hopefully some of it will be fresh um, as uh, I preach version two of that. And so we're in Jeremiah 29, if you could flip there. Jeremiah Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 7. Uh, this is a message titled, Seeking the Welfare of Our Cities. And that phrase really just comes directly from the text that we're about to read. Verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and become the fathers of sons and of daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. And seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will have welfare. Amen. Um, this message, uh, the, the fundamental uh, question that I, I think I, I, I want to ask for this message is this. Is when a Christian is living in a culture that is incongruent with a biblical worldview, how should he or she live? Okay. Because the context of our passage today is God's people who were conquered displaced and shipped off to the parts of the Babylonian Empire. And a lot of what of God's people encountered in Babylon was definitely different from what they had in Israel. Okay? And so it was a culture shock. Okay? What they were used to, how they normally went about their lives and their, even their religious lives was interrupted. And they were now uh, supplanted. They were introduced to a culture and in an environment that was incongruent and very different from life in Israel. Okay? And so the fundamental question that I offer is, how should the Christian living in a culture that is not biblical, that is not, in a sense anti-Christian or anti-God, how should he or she live. Okay? That's the fundamental question I want to propose to you with this passage. And the main idea is this, 
that as lovers of God, that if we call ourselves followers of Christ, lovers of God, we ought to live in, be concerned for, and seek the peace and prosperity of our cities and neighborhoods. That is my thesis, my premise for today's text and the message. Okay? And so whatever neighborhood or city we find ourselves in as a believer, that I ought to live in it, of course, but also be concerned for and seek the peace and prosperity of it. Now, that's an interesting thing. Okay? Now, of course, I live in my neighborhood, or I wouldn't call it my neighborhood, right? But in terms of the concern for my neighborhood, in terms of seeking its peace or prosperity, I think that actually takes it a step further that a lot of Christians might not easily move into. And the radical idea, if this is the main idea, the radical idea that I want to give to you today is this. That God's people should work for the good of those who are opposed to Him. Now, why do I think that and pose that as a radical idea? Because I think it, sometimes it's a sad reality that Christians are viewed as outsiders. I don't know if you've ever encountered that in your workspaces, right? If you go uh, to non-Christian environments, a lot of the times if you try to introduce topics of Christianity or, you know, just faith comes up, a lot of the times Christians can be viewed as narrow-minded. Right? They got a simple stock answer to life's issues or whatever it is, right? And uh, that, 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 that idea that a, a Christian, you know, they're a little bit off or an outsider, narrow-minded or strangers, I think that can be a sad reality. And I, I don't think it should be. And what's surprising is that, you know, come election year, you know, whenever there's like anti-Christian things on the ballot, you know, like props, whatever. And then the church really gets on the horse of that one, right? There's a proposition for this, and it's really anti-biblical, right? And suddenly, you know, you have Christians trying to rally around it because it's a, a Christian issue, right? And I think that Christians can be conditioned to only seek for and really support issues that are quote-unquote Christian. And when it doesn't have that type of label to it, I think in a certain sense, it's almost hands-off to it. Like we're not as interested in it. We're not as, as, as um, willing to involve ourselves in that because it's not labeled Christian. And I, I don't think that's the right thing. And I, I think that Christians are taught so strongly and regularly to avoid sin because we're this royal priesthood. We're not of this world. And of course, that's something that we are. That's our identity. But if we're taught that so strongly and regularly, it's possible as an outcome of that teaching to be afraid to have contact with the world. Like, you know, I, I shouldn't go there. You know, I, I shouldn't be a part of that. That's not a conversation I want to be a part of, or those aren't the groups of people that I want to hang out with. Now, I, I do want to tread uh, water carefully here because this is not a message uh, about compromise. You know, I, I'm not trying to say that, but what I want to provoke in us today is this, this idea that I, I don't want us to simply be comfortable or keepers of an aquarium. And forget that our identity is to be fishers in the sea. It's, it's very, this is very contained, right? It's sterile. Like, I don't want to like simplify and say the aquarium is our churches, but I want to pose that to you and have it as something to think about. Like, when I'm involved with fish, 
Is it in that clean and controlled environment of the church? But Jesus has called me and he says, I will make you fishers of men. And that is not talking about a religious context when he, when he says that. And when he says, I'm going to make you a fisherman, he's saying that there are so many people out there that need to hear about this message of the gospel, and I am going to make you a fisher of those folks. It is not just to go into the temple environment and to speak a biblical message or a, a narrative of scripture of some sort, but it is to go into the world and to know that in the uncontrolled, untempered environment of this raging sea, that there are fish there that are to be caught for Jesus, and that is the identity of a follower of Christ, not simply one who swims and interfaces with other fish in this little controlled aquarium. But again, I'm going to tread water carefully because I don't want you to think that this message is going to encourage you to compromise Christian principles. Okay? Like, you know, all right, I'm just going to be willing to go into any and every environment that is outright sinful because, you know, God has called me as a witness there. And then as a part of that, as to reach them, I'm going to like, you know, be subversive and, and, and really just engulf myself in that. And a part of that maybe is compromise. And I, I don't want to say that, of course. Right? This aspect of being a, a, a royal priesthood, separate and not of this world, a part of it but not of it, is not talking about our engagement or our relationships. It's talking about our values. It's talking about our worldview, right? And so I want to be careful not to encourage you to compromise Christian principles, but what I want to say is don't be afraid to engage culture. Okay? That engagement of the workspace that is, in a sense, I mean not Christian, right? Anti-God, if I would even say so. Because again, the, the radical idea that I'm posing to you today is that we as God's people should seek and work for the good of those who are opposed to God, okay? Opposed to Him. Because Israel right now in our, in our passage, in this context, is in, in an environment that is not God-like, God, for God in any way, shape, or form, okay? It is a pagan nation empire, Okay? And God's words to the exiles of Babylon here, they are profound, they are provoking, and I would venture to say they are uncomfortable for the recipients. And so, in this idea of engaging, just what I want to say is this, that we need to be approachable and incarnational. I've, I've shared with you this idea of incarnational, right, a few messages ago, that incarnational is meeting people where they're at, not expecting them to come to where we are at. That's incarnation, right? Jesus uh, emptying himself, coming down and being in the form of a man and humbling himself to become a bond slave and, and giving himself to death as a ransom for many. That is coming down to humanity because humanity did not have the spiritual means to get up to God by itself. And so it's meeting people where they're at. And this is the idea that I want to talk about of incarnational engagement, approachable. That when we see our faith play out in the world, that we need to take our faith and meet people where they're at. Not expect the conversation to come from them and for them somehow to stir up a curiosity and meet us in our space of faith and then engage in a religious conversation. That we as God's ambassadors and people need to be in spaces where the gospel light needs to shine. 
Light is supposed to shine in dark spaces. It makes no good to put a thousand bulbs on in the church space and for there to be utter darkness everywhere else and everyone stumbling over their feet because they can't see. God's people who are called as light need to shine that light in the spaces that don't have light presently. That's what I want to provoke in you today. Okay? And another thing that I'll say is this. Let's not get so caught up in our image that we forget about our mission. And what I'm trying to say is this. You know, uh, like, have you ever, I don't know if you've ever, like, especially as a pastor, you know, sometimes I, I have this pressure, right? Like, if I, I, I don't want to be caught in a space. I mean, I could be in a space for whatever reason, whatever different reason that got me there, right? But you know, like, like, oh, I saw you there, <laughs> you know? It, it, like, I can be so caught up in upholding the image of a pastor that I forget my mission, right? If I'm so afraid to, to, to kind of like be in spaces or have conversations or be involved in things that engage curiosity with people that I forget what my mission is in the world, which is to be a fisherman and a witness for Christ, something has gone awry. Okay, and so understanding the context of our passage. Israel is conquered as a people and this time they are conquered by the Babylonians and I've shared this with you before right the Babylonians what they did is any nation that they conquered they wanted to weaken its identity and how do you do that how did the Babylonians do that what they did was they displaced the leaders of the nations they conquered and so anybody of clout, the political leaders, the religious leaders, right? That those folks who had a, a stripe or an, a badge of honor on their sleeves, so to speak, that those people in particular were taken out of their homes and displaced. Because if you take the leadership out of the nation, somehow they understood that people would scatter, they would lose its identity, right? And so now all of these people, especially the religious leaders, the political leaders, anybody of influence was removed. And as now people are taken away from their homes and just really brought to the, to the, to the outer skirts of the empire, they are, are struggling. And, you know, it's, it's a different type of immigration, right? This, right? People come to America and they come from different countries all over, this, all over the globe, and they come here because they want to come here, right? And so they're away from their native land, place of birth, because they want to come here for a better life. Now, the Jewish people that found themselves in the Babylonian Empire here in this space didn't go there for a better life. They didn't want to be there, right? And so what they're thinking of is, I am, in a sense, a refugee, Right? And not of the sense like, I like being here as a refugee and I'm just going to stay here and seek asylum here for the rest of my life. This is being in a space that I don't want to be and I want to get out of here type of mentality. Right? And so, as exiles now in the Babylonian Empire, God raises up Jeremiah as a spokesperson and he, and he wants to speak a message to the exiles of Israel in this difficult time. And you can imagine... <laughs> They're looking for a, a word of hope, right? They're like, you know, God will send a deliverer and we will be brought back to our homes and our synagogues next week. It's going to be wonderful. And you can ex just, you know, expect that these people wanted such a word, 
right? And so Jeremiah rises up and he speaks a word to the exiles and he says, you know what? Stop thinking about home, right? Stop thinking that this is temporary for a moment. I want you to, to, to lay down some roots for a second. I want you to build some stuff, plan some stuff, and I want you to actually dwell here, right? And what he's saying to the recipients, I'll give you a word, like in 70 years, I'm going to bring you back. But 70 years is not a short time. You know what 70 years means to the listeners of that word, that prophecy? When Jeremiah spoke to the people in 70 years time, you'll be brought back. To the people that were listening to that word, this is how they interpreted it. I'm going to die here. Like, I'm going to die in this empire, in this nation, in this foreign land. That's how the recipients would have understood this. Right? It's not like, oh, great, God is going to bring us back. No, He's going to bring my grandchildren back. <laughs> right? It, it, that was the narrative. That was the conversation. That was what was understood to the recipients, to these exiles. You're going to die here. So change your mindset. Stop thinking of escape and reverting back home and start to get comfortable. Start to know how to live and to move about in this culture. That's the word that he was saying. And what he says, like God says this, I sent you there. I have sent you. Right? It wasn't the Babylonian king that brought you there. It wasn't anybody else. God's saying, I put you here. I got a purpose for this. Right? And I don't know about you, I mean, anytime you have a lot of immigrants or people from other nations congregated in a different nation, what do you inevitably find happening? You find cultural clusters starting to form, right? You can go to downtown and find eth ethnocultural, ethnocentric communities. You can find a K-town, a J-town, a Russian town. You can find these towns. You can find a Thai town. You can find them, right? And so you can imagine that there was a J-town in the Babylonian Empire, or there were J-towns in the different provinces. And what I mean by that, the Jewish people inevitably clustered around other Jewish folks to find strength and identity, community. And that's natural. And I'm not speaking against that. There's something that's very positive about that and uh, the enabling and really, you know, it engages people, allows people to reinforce and mentor the faith as well. And, it, you know, it really uh, helps us not be isolated or feel alone or depressed. And that type of community can be strong. And I don't know if you've ever researched immigrant communities. There are two mentalities or two pictures that can describe them. One is like a melting pot and one is a mosaic. Have you ever heard those terms in terms of talking about ethnic communities, right? And so you think about like countries where immigration is high. Think of the United States or even Canada or the UK or wherever it might be, okay? And so in these countries, you have people from all of these other countries immigrating there and wanting to make a home there. And there are ways in which immigrant communities can assimilate to now that home country, that the new home country. And it can be like a melting pot or a mosaic. A melting pot is when you get all of these metals and you put it in a pot and you put some fire to it and it all becomes one now joined metal. 
It's all like you can't separate now the gold from the silver again once it's melted together, right? But a mosaic is like, you can think of like tiles, right? Imagine like someone had this had this large kind of uh, canvas and you put these, like, you know, just, you tiled it and then they're self-contained colors, right? And you can put like reds together and then you, they, they slightly go off in the oranges. And so they're like pixels in a sense or tiles and they're contained and they're a part of a larger fabric. And so the social and cultural identity of the ethno group here remains more intact in a mosaic than it does a melting pot. Okay, and so I'm not a proponent of one or the other saying that, okay, if you're Korean, you need to lose that Korean identity and you need to be all about American because now you're in a melting pot. Okay, I'm not necessarily saying that, right? But what I am saying is that as these ethnic communities build up and form, if I were to then transpose that and not talk about an ethnic community and talk about our faith community, okay, because this encampment, okay? This idea or mentality, this nature to cluster and to group is not just for ethnicities. It happens in faith. Right? It happens in this circle as well. And we get so comfortable finding support in this group that it begins to fortify and, the, and it just grows within itself. Okay? And it doesn't affect what's happening on the outside. And faith is exercised. Songs are sung. Bibles are read. And, exp and, and exposition. You know, all of this is happening within this community. And, and when I step out of it, it is no longer the same thing that's happening. It only happens in this contained unit. Okay? And so this is what I, I, I want to speak into today. And I'll share two main points. The first is this. Be an integral and natural part of the place where you live. Integral and natural part. Okay? And so what God is saying to the exiles, okay, you know, I get it. This is not favorable. This is not what you wanted. Okay? But I sent you here. You're in Babylon because my hand put you there. So I want you to know that you should live there. And he gives some imagery. And the first thing he says to them is, I want you to build a house. Build a house. Like, what does this house uh, symbolize for us? Like, doesn't it symbolize a sense of like permanence, stability, right? Like, if when you're gonna put like a foundation in the ground and and put the resources, the time, and the energy into building a structure and living there, you're what you're saying is like, I'm gonna live here for some time. I'm gonna raise my children here. To the people that are not thinking about a permanent place of dwelling, what do they do? They rent, right? If, let's even think shorter term, right? You're on a vacation. Who buys and builds a house on a vacation? <laughs> right? you, I mean, maybe some rich people might think about that. I don't know, right? But you don't do that, right? To build a home is talking about permanence, longevity, that I am here for a longer term picture. And that's what he's saying to the exiles. Build a house. Live in them. Right? Now, for the exiles, I think building a house would have felt inconvenient, <laughs> maybe even impractical. Like, it's, I don't know, it's kind of inconvenient, God, to build a house. I, I want to get back home. I, you know, this is, this is not permanent for me. It's impractical. Like, God, like, you know, like when you have a rental, like, you don't want to put money into the rental because it's not yours. You want to put money into your home. And so they're like, it's, God, it's impractical. Like, I have some limited resources and I'd rather put this money into the house back home rather than this temporary one in Babylon, right? 
but it's trying to shift the mindset. Build a house. Don't expect the speedy return out of captivity. Right? And I love what Matthew Henry wrote in his commentary on Jeremiah 29. It is one of the most powerful quotes and excerpts, I think, that informs our Christianity. They cannot but weep sometimes when they remember Zion. And he's speaking of the exiles right now. But let not weeping hinder sowing. you got to get that into your gut. When you're crying over your circumstance because it's not what you want, let not weeping hinder sowing. Let them not sorrow as they that have no hope, no joy, for they have both. In all conditions of life, it is our wisdom and duty to make the best of that which is. Which is. And not to throw away the comfort of what we may have, because we have not all we would have. I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting to get out of here, then I'll really try. I'm just waiting to get to the next position, then I'll really give some effort. I'm just waiting to buy, then I'll really do this. Right? And we're always waiting for a better condition, the one that we want, the one that we feel that is right around the corner. And until we get there, we're on just this weird mode of just like, I'm, I'm just, I'm a holding pattern, right? He's saying, stop that mindset. If you're there because I've sent you there, build a house there. Put some roots down on the ground and know that I want you to be a part of this community. While you're there, get to know your neighbors. It's not an accident. Don't just pass time as an idle watcher. Be an investor. Live well. Work diligently. Grow your family and seek the neighborhood's prosperity. Let me give you the timeless parallel for this passage. Babylon, to me, that's the foreign land. And as a Christian, I think that represents this world, right? Because Israel was my home country, my place of citizenship if I was a Jew here. And that, for me as a Christian, the Bible tells me that I'm a citizen of heaven as a follower of God, right? And if, if this is not where I will ultimately stay and rest my soul, ah, you know, I'm going to lay treasure in heaven. All right? And so Israel, the timeless parallel can be heaven. And Babylon, in this analogy, is this world. Okay? And so let's not think only and solely about being in heaven and doing all that with God up there, that we forget about investing our time in the world and knowing that we ought to make a difference with the talents that God has given to us. If God allowed resources and, and days and years to pass through our lives, we're going to be held accountable for that. If I have eight decades to my name at life's end, God's going to say, what did you do with those 80 years? If I've had millions of dollars flow to my, through my, my fingers and bank accounts through my entire lifetime, God's going to say, what did you do with those millions of dollars? If I had relationships and it's thousands of numbers passed through my life, at the end of my life, God is going to say, what did you do with those thousands of relationships? Like, my life will be held accountable. My ultimate resting place is heaven, but when I get there, God is going to say, what did you do down there? Every crown in heaven will be dependent upon the things I did in the body. Right? Like, the crowns that I wear in heaven, those are dependent upon what I did in the world. 
And that is what I'm held accountable for. Right? I'm not preaching works-based salvation or Christianity because I will go to heaven by grace and by believing in that Christ has forgiven my sins. But all of the greater blessings of heaven, everything and reward that I can receive up there, there is a beta, a bema seat judgment. There will be things that are just burned up. I'm saved, but my works are burned up, and there are things that will remain. And God will hold me accountable for those things. Right? And so the timeless parallel is Babylon is the world, Israel is our homeland, our place of citizenship, which is heaven. But let me give you another parallel, because I think sometimes, I, I get this, right? But even though I, I understand this, there are times where I as a Christian, even though I know heaven is my home, I can live disengaged. And so let me make this a little bit more practical for us today. And let me say this, that I, I think that Israel can also be our Christian communities. Like, our place of faith. So not just heaven, right? Like, where I'm ultimately going to go to. But I think that aspect, that security in Israel can be my Christian community, my church, where, where I dwell, like my home. Like, I feel safe there. That's where I always want to be. That's where I feel comfortable, right? And I think Babylon, then, can almost, in a sense, be anywhere else. Right? Anywhere else besides that, okay? And so, I want to talk about our Christian activity. I want to talk about like where we're investing, where we're, we're seeking to make a difference. Yes, let's make a difference in Israel. But if God placed us and He gave us a company in a workspace, He sent us there. Like, if He put us in a community and we have a house there, then God's sovereignty knows we're there. Have the mindset that God sent you there to that city, to that zip code, to that company. Right? And if God sends you there, don't let it just be time that passes by waiting for the next thing. Right? Put down some roots and make a difference there. Right? And he also says not just build a house, but he says plant gardens and eat their produce. And it just reinforces that same thing. And what is it trying to say? Just be committed to where you're living. Like, be committed to where you're working. I know you want a job somewhere else, but forget about that for a second. Put in the resume. Go online and put it all out there. But while you're presently in this employment situation, be committed to it. Like Live where you're at is what he's saying to Israel. Forget about the future that you would have, could have, want to have. And start making some realities where you're at. Like you don't like where you're at? Make it better. Improve the skyline with your structure. Make a healthier environment with your gardens. Like make a difference there. There. Be committed. Now he's not telling Israel that this is a permanent, like you will live there forever and I'm going to do away with your nation because he told them, in 70 years time you're going to be back. But really, to that generation, he's saying you're going to die there. And I think it speaks profoundly to us as Christians how we ought to think about our influence, our life here in the body and also tangibly throughout our weeks. Take wives, have sons and daughters, have children and let them marry. 
Like he's saying, multiply, increase there, don't decrease. And so we ought to be an integral and natural part of our environments, the places where we live. And secondly, what I'll say is this, that we have to enhance and influence them. Not just be a part of it, like take up space, like, but He wants us to be present there and to make a difference there. Like to be there and to make it better. Right? That, that's the mindset, I believe, of a Christian. Like if you're a believer and you're in a company, I think the company should be better because of you. Let's be honest, right? If we have Christian values, if I believe in love, the supremacy of love, and if I am patient, if I'm willing to see big picture, if I am having a Christian worldview and mindset, and I know how to sacrifice and turn a cheek, I know how to invest and be a steward, if I know these things, if if I live according to the Bible, I believe that whatever environment that Christian is in, that that environment will be better. It should be better, right? It should be. And so we ought not just to take up space in our neighborhoods, but we ought to enhance and influence them. We ought not just to take up a desk in our companies, but we ought to enhance and influence them. Because he says to them, I want you to seek its welfare, right? Like, make it better. (laughs) Seek its welfare. And this is the radical idea that God's people should seek the good and prosperity of people that are opposed to God even. Like, seek the welfare of Babylon. Like, I'm calling you to be a change agent for good in your community. And I think it requires a mindset. And we need to combat a tendency. What's our tendency? I think our tendency is this, to maintain a monoculture. I think it's represented in some of the ethnocentric kind of communities that pop up. If you think about your workspaces, if you think about the people you hang out with, your friends. I mean, more often than not, we're kind of maintaining kind of our self-identity and just patterning that around us with certain people that are similar, look similar, feel similar, talk similar, same income bracket type thing. You know, we are so prone in our tendency to develop a monoculture. Church congregations tend to look alike as years pass. You know, different departments, it does that because we, we tend to surround ourselves with people that look like us. It's just tendency, right? But what's our calling? Our calling is to impact community residents. And we're not always surrounded by people that look like us, that talk like us that believe the same things as us. And the calling of a Christian is not just to maintain that monoculture, but to impact the people that are around us. What's another tendency? We have a tendency of waiting for better conditions, don't we? Like, like, I'm just going to wait it out until it gets better, right? You know, and, you know, we want to move into conditions that are already good, right? And so we're just waiting for a better day, waiting for the rain to pass, right? And I think that's our tendency. And so when things aren't favorable, we don't really just kind of get in there and try to change it. We just kind of wait it out. We wait it out. That's tendency, I'm saying. Okay. But I think calling is improving current conditions. Okay. Calling. And so when we're in a condition that's not favorable, the calling of the Christian, not every time, but I think as a... natural disposition that begins to tweak and change, we need to to train ourselves and and, and teach ourselves that we are called as salt. Salt. Like salt changes the condition of meat that would rot. 
That's what it did in biblical times. And when the, when the Christians and believers are called salt of the earth, that's what it, like, change agent, like, make a difference, right? Don't just, like, wait. No, apply it to this and make a difference on it. Change its consistency, its trajectory. Okay, improve it. And then he says, pray to the Lord on its behalf. And, like, Let's dissect our prayer life internally for a second. You know, if I were to give you a few moments just to think about that. Like, what do we pray for? I mean, we probably, pray, if we're in a dilemma, we pray for the dilemma. We pray for our family. We pray for, you know, our work. And we pray uh, for, uh, you know, improvement or healing. Whatever, like, a lot of our prayers are like, you know, damage control prayers. We're like, in trouble, I need help, Lord, help me, type thing. Or prosperity prayers, and we're asking God for blessings and opportunities in certain ways. And a lot of our prayer life surrounds that. Now, if we think about intercession, we intercede for brothers and sisters that we know are going through stuff. We intercede for people uh, that have uh, just let us know their prayer requests, right? Uh, but what he's saying to the exiles here is pray for Babylon. Like, pray for the culture. Pray for it, right? And I don't know, maybe that wasn't as natural, right? It's, it's not natural necessarily for, for all believers to pray that way and to think that way, right? Like, am I praying for my community or my, the culture of America, you know? And so, to give us at least some direction in how we should pray, in terms of praying for where we're at, let me, let me give you a couple or a few, right? The first thing that I think we should pray for is God's mercy over people. You know, the Bible's clear. It says in John 6, 44, no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him. So if we're praying for our communities to believe in Jesus, the first thing that we pray for is God to have mercy over those communities and people, that God would draw people to Jesus. That's a spiritual intercession first. Before I do anything verbal, anything that impacts in a tangible way, I'm praying and I'm saying, God, draw people, draw this community, draw my neighbors, my colleagues, and, and people that are, I'm surrounded with closer to Jesus. That's my first prayer, right? The second prayer is this, praying for wisdom for elected officials. And I say that because in 1 Timothy chapter 2, the first two verses, it says this, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, but for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And so he's saying, I want you to pray for your kings and people who are in those higher offices. Well, as a follower of Jesus, let's make that something that we do regularly, right? not just in election year, right? and asking for our particular candidate to get in office, but pray for the ones that, we, that, that are in office that maybe we, it doesn't sit well with us. Right? And, but we're praying for them. And, and we're saying, Lord, may people live a godly and peaceful life, dignified. And you pray for those people that can make those those legislative decisions, right? And the th third thing that I'll at least give us today is that we can pray for the faithfulness of Christians to engage in civic duty. Now, some churches are really strong on this, like engaging in civic duty. And sometimes a lot of politics can also be preached from the pulpit, right? But what I'm saying here is this. In Romans 13, 
Let every person be in subjection to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And this is really saying to the believer of God, engage, be civically involved, right? And I, I think that's something that we can pray for. Because interestingly, what he says is that in the city's welfare, you will find welfare. Like, you're included in that. When, when your community does well because you, you have influenced to do so, you benefit from that as well. Right? And so, build a house, plant some stuff, have some kids, have a long-term vision, pray for the city. And as you pray for the welfare of the city and do your part in that, you too will also find welfare. This really piggybacks on that message a couple of weeks ago about leaving 99 to chase after one lost. Uh, to combat that. And if you're sitting here listening to this message, maybe it's easy for you. Like maybe being civically involved, like praying for a culture and community comes easy to you. I want to say keep on doing that. Maybe find newer expressions and ways to be able to do that. But maybe it's difficult. Like, the only time Christianity really comes out is in a Christian community, right? And in terms of, like, making a difference in your company or, like, with your neighbors, like, I don't even know their names. Like, like my garage door is my moat, <laughs> you know, the drawbridge. You know, I got this castle, and it's like when I'm coming home, the drawbridge goes down. I cross over the moat, and as soon as I get in, that's the garage door. The garage door goes down, right? And as soon as the garage door goes down, only the people that I'm comfortable with are in there, right? And outsiders, village folks, they, they can't come in here, right? And so, I don't know, maybe that's your mentality, right? Like moat mentality, castle mentality, right? Drawbridge mentality. I want to challenge that. Like, I want to say, get, get to know the people that live next to you. Get to know their needs. Be involved on your street, in your neighborhood, and dare I say, in your community. And when all of those things are woven together, and those small little impacts kind of add up, bigger things can happen. And so God's saying to exile, stop thinking about the safety and wanting to get back home. Put down some roots there. Pray for it. Make it better. You might not want to be there, but I put you there. Like, however that speaks to you, I hope it sinks. And it, in a sense, provokes and forces you to think differently about the spaces you're currently dwelling in, taking up space in. And... You begin to flip a switch and say, how can I be light and salt in this space? Like if there's darkness there and people are fumbling over their feet, how can I show them some, some direction? How can I give some wisdom here? How can I give some light? If, if people's spiritual or emotional or mental lives are rotting away and just decaying under the, the heat of the sun, exposed to all of its elements, and God says, you're light, 
Like, how can I apply that salt to preserve life? Like, what can God do through me? What can He say? And so I'm about to close. Praise team, you guys come back. I'll close with two questions and just two statements that I think summarize this message. The first question is this. How am I presently involved? Okay, like presently. Just, just ask yourself that. How am I presently involved in my neighborhood and community? Okay. Disengagement, engagement, minimal, maximum, like just you assess that. And secondly, do I seek to receive benefits from my city more than I seek to give benefits to it? Right? Like, I don't know. You know, like for like wealthy folks, they want to move to states that have great tax breaks and advantages. And I get that, right? And so and we want to move to cities that have great schools and parks for our kids. And I get that. I mean, Jenny and I, we think about that all the time for our family, right? We want them to be in good schools, right? We want them uh, to have access to certain amenities that will really enhance their maturation. And I, I want that for, for our boys, right? But as a underlying disposition like if that's it as a Christian like I'm just gonna go to the most polished city the most kind of you know sanitary ones and you know I'm just gonna live this minimal Christian life uh, in my spaces I'm not really gonna get involved I don't need to know my neighbors I'm busy enough you know <laughs> like I, I don't know when I get home the last thing that I'm thinking about is getting to know my neighbors and like, is it that just complete disengagement? Now, you don't have to have a block party at your house every, every month. You don't need to invite them over for dinner once a week. And, you know, you don't need to bring a cake or a pie <laughs> and, you know, do that movie scene with them all the time. But I, I just want to provoke you to think, you know, like, how are we engaging our communities? How are we trying to get involved? And like, am I trying to live my faith life outside of my natural Christian community? That's what I want to provoke in us today. Let's not just be so comfortable in a controlled aquarium. Let's understand that there's a raging sea out there that vastly needs some fishers. And there, there are people there that need to be caught for Christ. And God's called us. You know, we don't need to bring our Christian language all the time to the workspace. You know, uh, a lot of the times there's workspaces where we can't do that. And, uh, but we can exert influence. We can be sacrificial to, to co-workers you know, that don't deserve it. And that speaks a profound message, you know. When someone's being mistreated and everyone's doing that and I turn the culture, that the tide in that work environment, that speaks, that's speaking the gospel to them, right? And there are ways for me to live out my faith that are very impactful. And I can do that on my streets and in my company. And uh, I want to challenge you to be able to, to do that. Look for that lost one and, uh, and be an agent and an ambassador of God for Christ to reach those folks. So I, I just want to add, like, am I just wanting to receive or can God turn something in me to say, I want to be a giver in my communities? Those are the two questions. And I'll finish with two statements. The first is this. Do more than take up space in your neighborhood. Find ways to make it prosper. Don't just have a desk at your work building. Make your company better. Don't just have an address on your street. Make your street better. Let's not just have our church be present 
on Orange Street in, in the city of Anaheim. Let's make Anaheim better because our church is here. That's where I want to push us. Okay. And the second and last thing is this. Pray regularly for your neighbors. Just pray regularly for them. Because I, I think the more we pray for people, it increases our heart for them. And it starts there. It starts with intercession. So pray regularly for your neighbors and your colleagues. And just ask for God's blessing over them. Right? And I think as we continue to pray for them, we'll, we'll be able to see opportunities as they pop up. And I think we'll be more prone to step into those opportunities once we've done that. That's where I leave you today. Can I get an amen? Amen.